come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke mm -hmm. upon your neck and learn from me. That has become a disciple, not that uh, learn from me, uh, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my, my burden is light. So I've loved those verses for a long time, but as I've continued to study Matthew, I have become convinced that if there that these verses are as nuclear core as you can get to the entire theology of Matthew. Take my yoke upon you not as a duty. Take my yoke upon you not because you better because I'm God and you're not. Right. But no. instead, this is where life is to be found. So it's the great paradox, the great irony of Christianity that freedom is found through slavery, that life is found through death, that mm -hmm. joy is found through taking a burden upon yourself. Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today I sat down with Dr. Jonathan Pennington, Associate Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Pennington is an expert on the Gospels, having written extensively on the Gospels in general and on Matthew in particular. Now, I'll readily admit the Gospel of Matthew is my favorite Gospel, and although I've read it multiple times, taken a doctoral seminar on Matthew, and even spent a whole year teaching through it on Wednesday nights, my apologies to the good folks of the Nicholasville Church of Christ, Dr. Pennington helped me understand my favorite Gospel even better by pointing out how much Matthew drives home the point that Jesus is not just the new and greater Moses, Jesus is also very much the fulfillment of the promises to both Abraham and David, the two figures who begin Matthew's genealogy from the outset of the book. I know you'll be blessed by what Dr. Pennington has to say. If you enjoyed this episode and think others may benefit from it, could I ask you to like it and share it on your preferred social media platforms? And if you haven't already, would you consider subscribing to Faith in the Fold so you don't miss out on future episodes? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, Dr. Pennington, thank you so much, sir, for joining us on the podcast today. It is a treat to be able to talk with you about the Gospel of Matthew and some things related to that. Thank you for tuning in with us today. Oh, I'm thrilled. It's great, so, great to be here. Uh, for folks who may not know you uh, very well, folks outside of uh, formal biblical studies and um, folks who maybe haven't caught uh, some of the uh, some of the really interesting books that you've written that we talked about before we started recording, help us get to know you a little bit. What are you doing these days? Uh, maybe kind of what drove your interest in uh, in teaching and and what has piqued your interest, especially in the Gospel of Matthew over the years. All right. Well, there's a lot there. I'll try to be <laughs> succinct here. So uh, I currently serve in two different roles that I love. Uh, I'm in my 17th year of teaching at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I teach New Testament here. And we, our school is so blessed. We're so large that I can almost exclusively teach in the Gospels. Even, I mean, our New Testament department oh, is big nice. enough that I, yeah. yeah, it is pretty nice. So I basically teach uh, master's level and PhD courses in the Gospels for the most part. Uh, and history of interpretation. But I also am the pastor of spiritual formation at my church here in town at Sojourn East, as, as well as one of the two teaching pastors. We have a shared pulpit, which is a total joy. So I preach about 40% of the time and then provide uh, 
some leadership for a number of the other staff. Uh, we have a pretty large church and large staff. So I love those dual roles. And uh, it's been those two streams uh, for the last 30 years of my life I have been off and on. I've been doing one or the other. And now at uh, age 51 and just the way my life has worked out, I can actually do both uh, right yeah. now, which I totally love. So it's, it's a great joy uh, for me to do that. Uh, how did I get here? Well, <clears throat> So I became a Christian at age 18 at a university uh, through Campus Crusade for Christ, mm-hmm. it was called in those days, and uh, was had a pretty radical overnight conversion from a life of uh, heavy metal and long hair and all that uh, in the late 80s, and then uh, really got a taste for theological education. I was mentored and discipled by some wonderful people uh, and ended up... Uh, serving for five years as an associate pastor in the Evangelical Free Church of America, which is really my background from Mm -hmm. college on, and then went to Trinity while I was doing that, which is the E-Free Seminary in Chicago, and had just a wonderful experience, so thankful for so many great professors and a great church at that time. And then uh, at the end of that time, uh, I was encouraged to go overseas to do a PhD. So I went to the University of St. Andrews and studied with uh, Richard Bauckham, which was a great honor and joy over there Mm -hmm. Uh, in a really, a really special time in St. Andrews um, where there was just a a, a coalition or a, a group of people that were really interested in what became this early days of theological interpretation, which I think most of us don't really care about that moniker, but at least a kind of a trying to figure out how to read the Bible more theologically and more formatively uh, with a lot of influence of pre-modern interpretation. So that was really my PhD years. And then since then, uh, like I said, I've been teaching New Testament, but also trying to figure out how to keep these worlds together of both uh, spiritual formation and and hermeneutics of pre-modernity. Uh, and for me, it's been a joy to work in Matthew in particular, uh, and to do a lot of work uh, teaching the Gospels in English and in Greek, and then to kind of at times narrow down into the Sermon on the Mount, which I've done a lot of work on, mm-hmm. and then from that kind of into some issues related to Christianity as a philosophy of life, and there's all kinds of things related to that. So there's the short version of, uh, of all that. No, that's that's great. Um, help us maybe for, for the folks who... Um, who- you don't have either, you know, like even an undergraduate, you know, degree in Bible or seminary training or something along those lines, help us understand sort of what you mean when you talk about a theological interpretation. And could you contrast that with maybe some of the, the more, uh, more typical things somebody might find if they went into formal biblical studies, something like a historical critical interpretation. Yeah, realized that was kind of maybe a confusing thing to describe. No, no that's because uh, um, I, mean, I think most people would think that they read it theologically, right, but maybe right. they don't know that that's what they're doing. Yeah, boy, there's so so many layers to that. It's a great question. I mean, I think in some ways it is what Christians have always done and what Christians of the church do naturally do already, which is to read the Bible to hear God speak and to read the Bible to be formed as a disciple. Uh, to read the Bible, to understand what's true about God, which is what we might call theology. So that seems like, well, of course, that's what we do. But yeah. the reality is in the last 250, 300 years of the academic world of biblical studies, which I also have a foot or two or three in, uh, <laughs> is that uh, I, you know, that in that world, that's, you can't do that. Or you're, at least you weren't allowed to do that for the last 250 years. You had separate disciplines. You have the theologians who are over there doing their thing. You've got the 
church historians, you got the Old Testament people, the New Testament people, and those worlds are not supposed to mix um, in the modern academy. Yeah. Uh, and so New Testament studies or gospel studies has primarily been very non-theological. You primarily read the gospels historically uh, or about history or I don't know how else, I guess, largely. And, uh, you know, I think history matters, obviously. I think it's crucial to the Christian faith that these things are real. You know, we don't think the gospel, or I don't think the gospels are just symbols of, of other realities. They're, they're speaking of real history, but mm-hmm. that their goal uh, is really to make disciples out of us and to train us theologically. So in a lot of ways, the theological interpretation of scripture movement that's been going on for the last 20 years or so has really been kind of a rediscovery movement of trying to kind of reconnect the church in the academy, I guess. I'd yeah. Say. Yeah. It surprised me when I started seminary um, back in 2010. You know, I I went to a private Christian undergrad, and so I had Bible classes and had, you know, I, I was a kid that was, you know, I mean, I was, I was in church Sunday morning, Wednesday nights, you know, I was, I was there, my folks were there with me, um, very thankful for growing up in a, in a spiritually healthy and, and in a congregation that loved, uh, love God, love God's word, They're very fortunate for all those things, but it was, it was fascinating to me when I got into seminary and actually started studying at the, at a higher level than I, what I had ever studied before. I had no idea that theology was something different from biblical mm-hmm. studies. I just thought they were right. synonyms. Right, right. And and for me to get into get into the study and realize, okay, it's the the Bible. Let's just take the Gospels for example, because that's what we're talking about. The Gospels are so deep and so rich that I can study these works very seriously as works of, say, ancient Greco-Roman biography, mm-hmm. and they can tell me about the person of Jesus Christ as a historical figure. And they can, and, and we can, you know, compare and then we can do other things like that. Um, but then I could also spend just as much time reading the gospels and understanding them as works that are meant to instill faith and fidelity and allegiance mm-hmm. to this person of Jesus. And, and what it tells me about Jesus as, um, as sort of a, you know, in, in sort of incarnational terms, um, and, and we can use the terms like Christology and and pneumatology. You know, study of the study of the Holy Spirit. I could spend as much time talking about that, and I just didn't know that sure. for whatever reason, those folks didn't talk to each other. Right. <laughs> I just didn't get it. Yeah. Yep. Um, but that was that was the case, and so to have guys like you and other folks really trying to um, trying to give this theological interpretation it's it's you know kind of it's due or to bring it maybe back into uh you know back into the realm of of conversation i i think that's a that's a really useful thing and uh and hopefully will continue to yield benefits i know that um i know that one of my professors in seminary used um used one of your books in in his new testament introduction class because he knew that he wasn't just training folks who were going to go on and get you know doctorates in historical critical studies, but he was training ministers and pa- you know we typically don't use the term pastors in our fellowship, but I mean, we were training ministers and and right, you know, right. folks who were going to do congregational ministry in those kinds of roles. And so we yeah, yeah folks That's are really appreciative <laughs> of that kind of thing. <laughs> I hear it. That's great. Yeah. So, so 
since we're on kind of, you know, talking about the gospel of Matthew and, um, you know, how exactly we can understand Matthew in the way that, you know, you know, the author and the way that, you know, as God's word, we should understand it. Let's stop off. Uh, let's start with a historical question. Mm-hmm. Kind of walk us through what is the genre? What's the literary category of the gospel of Matthew? And, and maybe what does that tell us about Matthew's aims for his account and uh, how we should read it and understand it? Yeah, that's a great question. And one I spend a lot of time teaching about it. I think in a lot of ways, that's my main goal, answering that question uh, in my own Gospels class that I teach. And, you know, when you think about genre, as your listeners may know, that basically means uh, a set of expectations that a type of literature creates uh, Mm -hmm. for readers. You know, so if you're reading, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal versus a comic book versus a uh, you know, whatever it is, a manual on how to fix your, the air conditioner on your 2000, <laughs> your son's 2000 Honda, uh, whatever. Uh, sounds like you've got some familiarity. Yeah, it's very specific. That. Absolutely. It's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, you know, you, you have different expectations for what you're going to get out of that different kinds of literature. And so it is really helpful, um, to think about the gospels, um, as the eternal word of God, that comes to us in a particular historical context. Real human authors wrote with real human language, inspired by the spirit to say things. And that real, those real human authors writing in real human language uh, give us a lot of clues when it comes to the gospels that we should be reading them like other ancient Greek and Latin biographies. There are so many similarities between them. There are differences too. Um, between the claims that the Gospels are making regarding Jesus. But what's the same is the structure, largely, and the, the purpose um, to, to write a biography. And I, I don't know if you're this way, but when I was a kid growing up, um, I, I remember reading a lot of biographies, and those really having an impact on me of, like, George Washington Carver and, you know, 9,000 uses for the peanut. Or, or uh, I remember reading it. <laughs> biography about somebody at Pearl Harbor in 1941, you know, and just, I still remember, I remember reading a, a biography of Alexander Hamilton when I was in high school, you know, now that is a lot more prominent of a name, but I remember yeah. being fascinated. I was there before the musical, but my point is, I mean, <laughs> I remember doing that being, before it was cool. I was way, be- <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I mean, I just remember being fascinated by Alexander Hamilton as a character, even in high school. And, you know, the, that's a very powerful genre. It always has been. Today, somebody might read a biography of Steve Jobs or, Mm. you know, Walter Isaacson has written some really famous ones of, you know, Samuel, uh, John Adams or Sam Adams or or John John Adams, I think. Uh, So, you know, those are, it's a great genre and it's an ancient genre. People cared about other people's stories in the ancient world as well. But they, what was different about ancient biographies that is true of the gospels as well, is you didn't just write a biography to, uh, just kind of tell you interesting things about an interesting person, like, you know, Britney Spears or something, right? Um, you, you actually wrote, usually you wrote a biography because you wanted to say to the world, here's somebody whose life is worth emulating, yeah. right? And so that gets to the purpose of an ancient biography. And I would say for the gospels too, is that they're really giving a repository in the case of Jesus, who's primarily seen as a teacher or a philosopher. In other words, he's not a military hero or he's not a statesman. You know, you might write biographies about people like that. But if you're writing a biography about a a philosopher that is a teacher, then what you especially want to do is give like a repository of what they taught. And you want to show 
that their lives matched that, that how they live really matched. I, I think yeah. of a, I always think of a line from Seneca, who was a great philosopher around the same time, who said, uh, you know, no one wants a seasick captain, right? In other words, you know, <laughs> you, you don't want to, you don't want to follow someone yeah. who can't really live it themselves, right? Mm. And so that that dual role of repository of the teaching and emulation. Uh, and a model of how to live in the world, those two things that I like to call and learning to inhabit the world in a certain way, how to seeing the world in a certain way through teaching and being in the world in a certain way through modeling. Yeah. That combination is why you wrote an ancient biography about a teacher. And that's exactly uh, what the gospels give us in a really beautiful way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, what a great line from Seneca, right? Yeah. <laughs> you could just see the guy at the helm, right? And he's suddenly turning totally. green. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's not going to do you any good. Exactly. Yeah. So if if Matthew's account is intended for us to um, intended for us to, to know Jesus's teachings and, and to and to come to model you know Jesus's life, um, are there some particular ways that Matthew styles that that maybe might remind some of his hearers of Israel's heroes in the past? That's a very leading question. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> we can just move yeah. on. Yeah, no, no, yeah, But it, sure. like, there's, there's a particular way, right, that, that Matthew really is driving home. All right, I'm going to highlight these things, and I want you to get that this, that, that Jesus' significance is tied to these yeah. figures in the past. Can you walk us through some of that for a little bit? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Hmm. Yeah, that's that is a good leading question uh, in the sense that, uh, for sure. Um, in fact, the number one word that can that can be used to describe Matthew, if you had to boil it down, one word, which I don't want to, but if you had to, the word would be fulfillment, mm -hmm. and and that that word is a is bigger than what the English word means. The Greek word there is bigger than the English word, but it does fulfillment's a fair enough translation because it basically means both continuity and discontinuity. So Jesus is being presented as one who's in continuation with the story of Israel and its yeah. characters and from Genesis on, and there's discontinuity. He's being introduced to someone who is disruptive as well as um, completing, completing the story of Israel. So there's going to be a lot of characters and, and institutions and events that are all going to be said to be fulfilled uh, in Jesus, not only in Matthew, but in the whole New Testament. I mean, I think fulfillment's a great word to describe the whole New Testament's relationship to the uh, Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. But um, you, you're probably, if your question, you're probably thinking of Moses. Yeah. And, and you <laughs> How know, did you know? <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting, you know, Moses, uh, yeah, so for sure, Moses is a parallel character in a lot of ways in Matthew. Uh, and Dale Allison, who's the greatest English speaking Matthew scholar still alive today mm -hmm. uh, has written a whole book on, you know, Jesus as the new Moses. And I think that's absolutely right. You can think of like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus goes up on a mountain and, and sits down and teaches, you know, and says, you've heard it said, and he quotes Moses. And I say to you, you know, so there's clearly parallels. Yeah. However, however, I, I think it's interesting how, so Moses is always there because he's such a dominant character in the Old Testament. Right. But it's also interesting how much he's not explicitly there in Matthew. Okay. In fact, there are two other characters that are more important, I think, for Matthew at, on the surface level, and they're found in the first verse of Matthew. The, the description of Jesus that we're given is, is that he is Jesus the Christ, 
son of David, son of Abraham. And I think those two titles really uh, set up the entire and really explain the Christology or the, the primary thing that Matthew wants us to understand about who Jesus is. Uh, son of David's primary, which emphasizes that he is the son of God, who is the descendant and the promise to David, the one who will bring about the reign of God, the kingdom of God, that David was the apex of, yeah. that he will bring about the kingdom of God upon the earth. So that's the primary one. Uh, but then son of Abraham um, is really important, too, because the New Testament sees the fulfillment of Jesus as being the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, primarily. It just If you open Matthew and then open the book of Galatians right next to it, it can be really insightful because Christianity sees itself as the promise to Abraham being fulfilled, particularly that, out a syllable in that word, sorry, particularly uh, that... Uh, before there was the nation of Israel, there was a man who was a pagan, a Gentile, who came to know God and trusted him by faith. Yeah. And that that becomes, if you read Paul's arguments over and over, he's constantly going back to Abraham to make this argument. Not that it, the New Testament is anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic, not at all. It's actually saying there's something before there were Jews yeah. that is what Jesus is fulfilling, that he might be a blessing, what's it say to Abraham, to all nations. Mm -hmm. So I think that son of David, son of Abraham are the two main ways that the Jews is described in Matthew. So Moses is there, but he's almost downplayed because I think of the conflict between early Christians and early Jews particularly on this issue of what the role of the Mosaic covenant or teaching is. Okay. Right. So yeah. I think it's a kind of a nuanced answer there. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I had not, um, <clears throat> I hadn't thought about kind of setting up, not necessarily in, in, in tension with, you know, the sort of Moses, um, Moses theme that's driving through, but at, at least alongside with this Moses, uh, they, for our audience, the, the word typically used is typology, right? Where somebody is kind of, you know, Matthew is drawing out things in Jesus's life and statements of Jesus in order to highlight patterns or characteristics that are reminiscent mm -hmm. of Moses. And so that, that word is typology. Um, that's kind of a quick and dirty definition of that. I hadn't thought about also holding alongside that kind of the David and Abraham you know, patterns or, or types or something like that. That's uh, when you present that idea elsewhere, do you get a lot of pushback on that? Or how are folks generally, how do they generally receive that? Oh, I think pretty well, but it's mostly <laughs> students. So what are they supposed <laughs> to fair. say? It'll be on the That's exam. Fair. So they better agree. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, uh, yeah. I mean, honestly, maybe I'm just self-deceived, but I would just say, try it out, read Matthew yeah. with those two lenses. And I think you'll see that it actually makes a lot of sense of Matthew. Um, I've had the privilege of teaching through Matthew. I can't even count now in mo mo the whole book multiple times every year for the last 20 years. That's great. And it, it just makes more and more sense to me that those two, because those two themes are uh, not immediately apparent that they mm -hmm. go together, but they really do yeah. uh, in the sense that it's the kingdom and it's the blessing to all nations, right? Right, and that's how those two characters really play out typologically. I think so. Yeah, yeah I just say read Matthew and see if that makes sense of it. Um, after all, it is there in the first verse, which I think that, is a pretty pretty good clue that there might be something to it. You know? <laughs> yeah, no so. kidding. 
Well, and you can dig into David's background a little bit more as well, because I mean, you know, it, it, if you want pure lineage, right? Um, well, I mean, David's got this uh, this Moabite hanging around in his uh, in his ancestry, not too not too far removed. Um, yeah, and Abraham. And the, that's right. The genealogy highlights these the gentileness and the out of the pale, uh, outside the pale of acceptable Jewish mothers. You yeah, know, in right. the, in in the women that are you know Rahab and Tamar and people like that who are not yeah. exactly always upheld you know i hadn't uh, i hadn't prompted you with this question before but I, I figured you'd be able to handle it uh pretty well um the women that matthew does mention in, in his genealogy are not the women that you one would expect right i mean they're they're not known for um <clears throat> i mean they're not um you know they're not like uh, dorcas from acts right, right right they're not um <clears throat> they're not lydia from Acts 16 right they're mm-hmm. not those kinds of uh, kinds of people is, is matthew trying to do something unique or, or special in his genealogy by highlighting these particular women women like you said who don't really have the best jewish pedigree or maybe don't don't really uh, uphold the best sort of uh, morals that that one would expect yeah i i feel um some question mark in my mind still there there are different scholarly opinions about what's going on in the genealogy um I'll say one thing and then another. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the women are being highlighted in the same way that women are highlighted in the New Testament as being witnesses and a crucial part of the understanding of of the what the new covenant means of an equality of men and women in the sense of like Galatians three twenty eight. There's no longer Jew or Greek, male or female. I mean, there's a there's a radicality. Uh, to Jesus's um, having all people are, have an equal standing before yeah. God, which in modern period, of course, of course, this sounds like normal, but that isn't how all ancient people right, thought, yeah. right? Yeah. Is what I'm contrasting it to there. And so, so, and, and I also would want, you know, I always want to be hesitant to say that any, if you look at the stories of each of those women, even though there is somewhat of a sexual cloud over them, mm-hmm. including for Mary, Right. After all, she shows up pregnant when they, she hasn't gotten married yet. Right. So yeah. it's all five of the women, even the four plus Mary. If you kind of push down into it, it seems like it wasn't always a fair thing. To, in fact, maybe never was a fair thing to say about these women. You know what I mean? So I, I feel this kind yeah. of ambivalence about kind of I'd say that they have some degree of irreputability, but it's not even really their fault. Sure. You know, yeah. so I do. I do think there is something probably going on there with that. As I've continued to study Matthew and the genealogy, increasingly, I think what's the biggest thing that's going on in the genealogy is a retelling of the history of Israel mm-hmm. in a particular way. And, and how this this really struck me uh, last year, I was for a PhD colloquium, we were reading a bunch of uh, what are called Second Temple Jewish texts. So a lot of texts after the Jewish scriptures, but before the New Testament are overlapping with the New Testament. And in a lot of those, they retell the history of Israel from a certain perspective. Yeah. It'd be like today, if somebody wrote a history of America from a racial perspective or an economic perspective or a mm-hmm. women's perspective, whatever it is, immigrants perspective, it'd help you kind of see the history in a different way. And there'd be yeah. a particular purpose for that. Well, a lot of Jewish people rewrote the history of Israel, not meaning rejecting the other, but like, retold it in ways to highlight certain threads right. uh, for their own 
day and time, right? Well, I've come to see the Matthewian genealogy verses one to 17 of chapter one, the same way, because he, he explicitly says, here's how to reinterpret the whole history of Israel. You got three phases, Abraham to David, David to the exile to Babylon. Mm -hmm. So sixth century BC, Babylon to Christ. And he even says there's 14 generations between yeah. all of them. So he's like, it's like a very particular way of rereading the history of Israel that I think is setting up the story he's going to tell us about who Jesus is, that Abraham to David is one phase, David to exile, exile to now. Notice again, Moses doesn't even make an appearance in that, which is, <laughs> right, yeah. which is pretty crazy <laughs> to think about retelling the history of Israel without talking about Moses, right? right but yeah. I think, I mean, Moses is going to appear throughout the book, but again, <laughs> I think it's like a reframing of saying, you really want to understand what God's up to? He spoke to Abraham, all that led up to David. Then David led to this disastrous thing, the exile. The exile led up to now, and now is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. That's how I take the genealogy. I, I like how you how you phrase that that what we have it, in Matthew's genealogy is three kind of distinct phases of of Israel's history. That makes a lot of sense, and, and you can definitely see it. I mean, if if we're going to take David right at you know sort of you know face value, yes, man after God's own heart. You know, God's greatest king, you know, sort of the, the kingdom will come, the eternal kingdom will come through him, those kinds of promises. And yet, Matthew doesn't shy away from uh, David's indiscretions. Uh, scripture, the Old Testament doesn't shy away mm -hmm. from David's indiscretions. Um, I don't know if you have seen the uh, the the TV, sh the, the new Jesus TV show that's going on called The Chosen. Uh, I, to my shame, I have not seen all of it. I've okay. seen some. <laughs> I, I loved what I saw and yeah. I, I just don't watch a ton of TV, so I haven't seen the whole of it. Yeah. And, and that's all right. Um, you know, I, I'm not sponsored by them, so I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting any royalties for this, but there's a, there's a scene in there and it, right. It's a TV show. So artistic license and all that, but there's a scene in there where, where John the Baptist and Jesus are having a conversation and Jesus, you know, refers to David and John the Baptist actually, actually, it kind of roasts David a little bit for his sexual indiscretions. So like, yeah, that's that's all there. And pious Jewish men would it, like of the caliber of Jesus and John the Baptist, they would it would certainly make sense for them to criticize David in in these moments. But to think about David as kind of you know an apex, but then also sort of the be the beginning of the end, mm. so to speak. That's. Whew, that hits kind of hard. It does, yeah. And Matthew yet doesn't shy away from that. I, I really like kind of thinking about those as, as different phases. Yeah, mm -hmm. that makes sense. That yeah, makes sense. That is helpful. <laughs> what, um, what are maybe some other emphases? So we've seen Son of David, Son of Abraham. Um, what are maybe some other emphases as, um, at, that we see in the Gospel of Matthew? Would you be willing to talk uh, just for a moment, in addition to maybe a couple of others uh, that you can think of, would you be willing to talk for just a little bit moment, a little moment about how Jesus may be um, this new lawgiver? Some folks have read in the Gospel of Matthew sort of five, yeah, you know, like five big teaching sections, and they kind of think that that maybe maybe a new Pentateuch. I know that was in favor at one point, and maybe has fallen out of favor some. Um, mm -hmm. Could you talk about that, and then maybe some other some bi other big emphases that we haven't touched on yet? Yeah, sure. Gladly. Um, yeah, I do think it's really important to recognize that Matthew, of all the Gospels, pri primarily presents Jesus as a teacher mm -hmm. slash philosopher. And, you know, 
can't help but recommend this <laughs> book I came out with later. Jesus and I, I will put a link to uh, yeah, I will put a link to uh, link to that and some of your other stuff uh, in the description below on, on all this. Um, yeah, that's great. Thanks. But yeah, I mean, just as a teacher and a, or a philosopher in the ancient sense of someone who makes disciples, and that's the key. And so those those five there are five major teaching blocks. We all, sorry, often call them the five major discourses of Matthew. So mm. chapters five to seven, the most famous of them is we call the Sermon on the Mount. Going back, Augustine was the first one that we know called it that. Oh, and then chapter 10 um, is about being a witness in the world as a disciple of Christ. Um, chapter 13 is about the mysterious nature of the kingdom of heaven mm -hmm. that's revealed and hidden. Uh, chapter 18 basically is life together in the community of Christ now. And then chapters 23 to 25 is about God's discernment or judgment, both now and in the future. Um, and so those five major teaching blocks, uh, I mean, all of Matthew is, it's a very beautifully structured piece of literature that intersperses these teaching blocks with, with uh, stories about Jesus. Again, repository of teaching, yeah. emulation of the mm -hmm. same, and yeah. it alternates throughout. So I do think that's, that's the biggest idea in Matthew, probably. Well, fulfillment is the biggest idea, but the idea of the Jesus is a teacher. And then there are other teachings throughout Matthew as well, but those are, he has a lot of them collected together into those discourses or epitomes. Sometimes they would be called. Yeah, kind um, of summaries, right? Like if, yeah, summaries. If, that's if, right. If you were to on sit a down topic. And, yeah. On a, if you were to sit down topic. and read these just as is, surely Jesus taught for more than, you know, that's right. 20 minutes, right? Yeah, really the Sermon on the Mount takes 17 minutes. to 20 minutes to, to uh, read. So, right. It's, I always <laughs> yeah. joke, you know, he didn't take everybody out in the wilderness and said, and, you know, spoke for 17 minutes and said, thanks, we'll be here all week. Yeah. There's something, uh, make sure yeah. you pick up a kosher hot dog. Yeah. You know I mean? They're, they're, they're summaries. And this is what Calvin said. It's what people have always said throughout history mm -hmm. is that these are um, true, uh, faithful summations of Jesus' teachings. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that's a big part of it. Now, as a lawgiver, again, I would say the same nuance in that there is a mosaic, a Moses kind of typology, yeah. especially in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, um, uh, he says right at the beginning, um, do not think I've come to, a, or 517, do not think I've come to abolish the law mm -hmm. or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. There's the word, There it is. right? Not one little bit of this will pass away till heaven and earth and all is accomplished. Um, and I tell you, unless your righteousness, which is this major Old Testament idea of doing what is right, is what righteousness means. Mm -hmm. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to unpack what that means throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is a new lawgiver. Uh, as long as we understand what the word law, Torah in Hebrew yeah. or namas in Greek means, it doesn't mean what the English word law evokes for us like a this abstract thing that some you know city council or congress makes this thing that has nothing to do with me that's not what torah means in the old testament it means a the stipulations for a covenantal relationship mm -hmm. right so it's more like a marriage contract or something that yeah there are stipulations like that a husband and wife you know don't they're not oh of course know, kissing yeah. other people or whatever, right. or whatever, you know, you don't yeah. live with somebody else. There are well, very so, clear know. expect without yeah, yeah. having to spell them all out. There are very yes, clear exactly. expectations of behavior, but, but it's relational. 
Yeah. Right. Is the point. And that's what Torah is. It's God saying, Hey, I love you. I'm going to be in a relationship with you. It's an unequal relationship. You know, I'm providing almost everything. What do right. you give back honor and love? Right. But this, that this is a relationship, but there are stipulations to this. And that that's not the opposite of grace. In fact, the whole thing is based on grace, but there are stipulations. That's the nature of a, of a covenant. And so if we understand Jesus, if you understand him in that way as a new lawgiver, that's fine because we do indeed see him offer. And he says at the night of, of his, before his death, he says, I make a new covenant, a new relationship through my blood with you. And then you could look at all of Matthew, all of the new Testament really as the unpacking of what the, what the nature of that relationship is all based mm -hmm. on grace. Um, but still having a, a, a real reciprocity in it and, uh, and an obedience to it yeah. as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, um, it, I think it's really helpful for us to uh, for us to have a good grasp for, for you know, church folks, especially to have a really good grasp of kind of what what Torah was intended to be. Uh, and I think you're right to contrast it with um, you know, with laws that we would think of you know, from a legislature, mm -hmm. whereas uh, you know, Torah tended to have a, almost like a, a customary element to it. Is that fair? It's like, you know, th these are the these are the customary expectations and behavior that that one should naturally abide by when in this kind of relationship is yeah. that kind of a fair way to nuance that yeah and sometimes specified out you know too as well often <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah and law it's ultimately love i mean in the old mm -hmm. testament and in jesus own teaching how do you sum up the whole law at the end of the day it's not well here's you know the 28 things you have to make sure you do it's love yeah love god it's relational love god with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself i mean that's the that's the whole law. Yeah. Uh, so. uh, could we dig into that for just a little bit? Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but other other Jewish thinkers and teachers before and during Jesus's day mm -hmm. were having discussions about what were the greatest commandments. First off, let me ask: Was it appropriate to to rank? laws i mean obviously yes it was because you know jesus did it jesus but does, right? like yeah. like like is is that appropriate or like you know help us maybe describe sort of describe maybe for us sort of what what they're trying to do and and maybe what were some of the other greatest commandments that some had suggested some other jewish teachers and thinkers had suggested um or in and around that time was yeah, anybody it, saying not to boil a kid in its mother's milk? Was that probably not? Was that anybody's not. greatest command? <laughs> Maybe uh, butchers or something. I don't yeah. know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, it's appropriate if you understand Torah as shaping us to be a certain kind of people, mm -hmm. whether it's Torah in the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, or Torah in the New Testament, which means, again, just a covenantal relationship. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because it's about virtue. Um, that is that the reason God gives instructions are not, um, I'll get real fancy here for you and talk in, in ethical terms. God's instructions are not deontological, meaning that they have nothing to do with us as people. They have everything to do with us as people. He wants us to learn to be uh, a certain kind of people that is as he is, right? Leviticus 19 and 20, be holy. And in Matthew 5, 48, be teleos or complete or whole, mm -hmm. you know, just basically what holy actually means, uh, even as God himself is. 
And so the, the fundamental ethics of the entire Bible are imitative. That is, we're to be like God himself is. Yeah. And so in light of that, uh, it's entirely appropriate to say, okay, what's sort of the essence? If you were to shake out all the specifics that are given, there's, there's some essence underneath it. Like, what is the, the true nature of it? Um, and again, the answer is given as, as love, uh, this double love. And notice that in Matthew 21 and 22, they're trying to test him where, that, where he says yeah. that. And when he answers that, they're like, okay. <laughs> actually, they, they're upset by his answer. Like, they were actually pretty impressed with that answer yeah. because that was that was not unique to him. That was a, probably a pretty, I, I don't know, there have been ex-sources well enough to, to quote any, but I, my mm -hmm. understanding is that uh, that would have been a very acceptable answer. I also, you always have to think also of Matthew 23, 23, a very important um, uh, text in Matthew where he is given a series of woes or kind of uh, yeah flag saying, watch it, don't live this way because yeah. this will result in your destruction. And he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, um, because you have neglected the weightier matters of the law um, and, you know, have, have missed out. You've burdened people and neglected the, again, the weightier matters of the law. So yeah. you've got this language of that there are some things that are weightier. So if you yeah. imagine a you know, atomic weight. If you want to think about like the periodic table or something, uranium has, it's, it's got a yeah. much higher uh, than, than oxygen or something. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the weightier man is the law, then he defines as Christus, which is probably justice, something like that, proper judgment or justice, mm -hmm. uh, mercy and faith or faithfulness. So he actually lists there in 2323, uh, a way to kind of sift through yeah. The, all the law love is the biggest, but then you could say, you know, what are the weightier matters of the law? It's actually, what does love really look like? It looks like doing what is right. Like justice, discerning correctly about who's right and who's wrong. Um, mercy showing mercy, a major theme in Matthew, which and we need to get back to the themes of Matthew <laughs> and then faith or faithfulness. So there, there you have it. Matthew 23, 23 is a really clear example of him sort of reading Torah in this sifting way. Yeah. Yeah. By reading, by reading Torah in this way, we, um, <clears throat> is it fair to say that we can, we see Jesus's, uh, Jesus's hermeneutic, right? His kind of interpretive mm -hmm. grid. And based on that leads Jesus to the kinds of criticisms that he makes of many of the leadership. Is, is sure. that sort of the basis for Jesus's criticisms of, of these folks? Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, yes, I think that's a fair way to say it. Yeah, that he is modeling the proper reading of the law. Mm -hmm. uh, at several points, he will say to them, have you not read, which is a very pointed thing, especially for a non-educated, non-rabbinically educated person like him mm -hmm. to say to the, to the experts, um, you know, be like a grade school kid walking into my advanced Greek grammar class or something and saying, you know, saying, you know, and then you're like just speaking in Greek to me. And I'm like, well, you know, yeah. so uh, not that Jesus is a grade school kid, but I just mean he wasn't formally. The contrast would be pretty striking. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it is that. I mean, I think, and the result of that misreading and misliving is I think really gets at one of the most important themes in Matthew, 
is the conflict Jesus has with the Pharisees and the idea of being a hypocrite. And it's a, it's a theme that was there in 23, 23, I just said it's other places. It's especially dominant in chapter six. And the idea is not quite what you and I think of the word hypocrite. When you and I think of the word hypocrite, we, mm -hmm. mean, we mean by that word, someone who lives one life outwardly, and then they secretly live a different kind of life. Yeah. And that is a kind of hypocrisy, but the hypocrisy Jesus talks about is closer to the bone. And that is they're actually living a good life. Like they actually are. They're not living a double life. Like they really are going to church, you know, in our categories and giving money and yeah. being faithful and discipling other people and whatever it is, or for the Jewish people, they were fasting and they were, um, you know, attending synagogue and temple and, and doing all the things they should have been doing, mm -hmm. but their heart was far from God. Yeah. So that's a more kind of, whoa, like a, a, a stronger definition of hypocrisy. It's not living this double life. It's actually living a good life, but having a disconnect with love for God. Again, it comes down to love. Yeah. And, th and this is, I think, at the core of Matthew's vision as well that he's teaching us from Jesus is that um, God is calling us to be whole people that are, that are external lives and our internal lives match each other. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's absolutely central. And 548, which I mentioned before, be whole. Um, and translations, unfortunately, English translations say perfect. Tend to go with perfect, yeah. Yeah, but it's really an unhelpful word because the English word perfect means today free from blemish or something. Yeah. But that's not what teleos, the Greek word, means. It means complete or consistent, like like a integrity, like an integer is a whole number as opposed to a fractional number. It's, mm. it's that whole category or the, uh, I always can never remember because I'm not a football fan, not American football. I'm a big other football fan, but the, it was the Browns or the Bengals. Somebody had a perfect record a few years ago, meaning they lost every game. So obviously that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't free that free from blemish yeah. it actually was a perfect record that's the older sense of perfect meaning it was consistent right mm. so it was said rather ironically now but yeah. but that's the, that's what that greek word teleos means uh, it's really what the word holy means in hebrew as well so that that i think is at the core of matthew's vision is jesus teaching us that god sees and cares about our inner person and don't be content to just do external things god wants to do a deeper work in our inner person as well yeah yeah. Another another question kind of along those lines. It it appears at least that I've I've heard, you know, having grown up in church all my life and, you know, having been a preacher for for a few years um, before moving into this role. Um, I have heard many folks say that Jesus was drawing a distinction where the weightier matters of the law would be things like ethical matters, right? Justice, mercy those kind of things. The less weighty matters would be things that hinged on more sort of ritualistic performances. Is that a, at the risk of oversimplification, is that kind of a fair way to, to present Jesus's, um, Jesus's teaching here, especially as Matthew highlights it? Um, I, I kind of say yes and no. I mean, I think there's something to that and what I've said, but I think it's sliced a little differently. Okay. I think the point is more uh, not the contrast between them, but the necessity of both. Okay. In other words, I, I wouldn't wouldn't want 
us to read Matthew saying that he's downplaying the external and the doing because he emphasizes the necessity of doing. For example, uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, anyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise person. Anyone who hears these words of mine does not do them. Or you think of uh, Matthew 12 when Jesus' family comes to him and because they think he's maybe gotten a little uh, gone a little too far. And he turns to the crowd and says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sister? Anyone who does the will of the Father. In other words, mm. that, that it really does matter how we live, that we be disciples, that emulate, uh, follow his model and, and pattern. So I wouldn't want to downplay that. But I think the point is that it's both and not either or. Okay. So, I, so that he's emphasizing, yes, it's important to be a disciple to take Jesus' yoke upon us and to learn his ways, you got to make sure you're doing that as much as you can, because uh, it's always going to be imperfect. But from a from a, a genuineness of heart, uh, a yeah. brokenness, a poverty of spirit, a, uh, a heart that is longing for God to come and set the world to right. You just think of the Beatitudes. They're all kind of pictures of of a, of a way of inhabiting the world, both internal person and external. So I want to emphasize that they, the call is to be both consistent in both areas. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, kind of, as we kind of draw near to the end of our time together this afternoon, um, let me ask what's, uh, what's a favorite, um, favorite story or, or favorite teaching for the gospel of Matthew, uh, one or two, if you've got time, um, no, and uh, maybe yeah. why, <laughs> why would those be your favorites? Yeah, I've, I've got I've got an easy one, Great. Uh, and that is eleven twenty-five to thirty, mm. and I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, this this text is very famous, but it's also it's uh, it's very beautiful and very encouraging. Um, let me just read it for you. In that time, Jesus answered and said, "I thank you." Uh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and, um, you know, educated or, or knowledgeable and have revealed them to the little ones. Yes, Father, for this is your uh, goodwill. Um, and all things have been given to be by my Father. No one knows the Son except for the Father. Uh, and neither does anyone know the Father except for the Son and the one to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, this oxen yoke, mm -hmm. upon your neck and learn from me. That is, become a disciple, Mathata. Learn from me, uh, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my, my burden is light. So, there's a lot there and, and it's very beautiful and very powerful, but so I've loved those verses for a long time. But as I've continued to study Matthew, I have become convinced that if there, that these verses are as nuclear core as you can get to the entire theology of Matthew. And I mm -hmm. don't have time to unpack them all, but if you just look at the exclusivity of Christ that's being claimed that the only way to know the true God of the universe who he identifies as the father is through the son. Yeah. Um, and notice, which is a radically Christian claim. And also the emphasis on this revelation is not something that is earned through education or through wisdom or something. It's, it's a gift of God, as he's mm -hmm. going to say later to Peter at the Caesarea Philippi confession, these yeah. things are 
revealed to you by flesh and blood. Uh, and then, and then the parables, the kingdom of heaven in chapter 13 really emphasize the same thing that some people see it and some people don't. Uh, but then those sweet verses of Jesus, this image of saying, take my yoke upon you, become my disciple, learn from me. And just such a powerful picture of and, and counterintuitive that he's saying, take my yoke upon you, not as a duty, take my yoke upon you, not because you better, because I'm God and you're not. Right. But no. instead, this is where life is to be found. So it's the great paradox, the great irony of Christianity that freedom is found through slavery that life is found through death, that mm -hmm. joy is found through taking a burden upon yourself, yeah. right? This is the, I mean, there's a million metaphors we could use for it, but this is the great paradox of the Christian faith um, is that he's saying, do you want to find rest? Take a burden upon you. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's meant to sort of make us wake up. It's and paradoxical. Realize, yeah, it's beautiful. It's the mystery of God in Christ for us. And so there is life to be found, uh, in, in the world and, and for the ages to come, but only through doing this counterintuitive thing, which is not doing whatever you want, mm -hmm. but learning a way of inhabiting the world that is Christ's way. And yeah. I think, so I just think that's like a very Matthean, uh, theme kind of idea. And also just a very beautiful and precious, uh, promise. Let me just say one more thing about it. Sure, of might. course. Yeah. No, uh, no, no. This, this is one of Augustine's. We've got time to dig into this if you'd like. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's okay. I've said more than I know. I'm sure already, <laughs> but, but this is, this is one of Augustine's uh, favorite texts as well. And so I feel like I'm in pretty good company because I'm a big fan. Yeah. And one of the many things he said in one of his sermons about this was that he says, you know, how, how could Jesus's burden be light and life-giving? He says, well, Jesus' yoke, uh, learning from him as a yoke, is like the burden of feathers to a bird. They do weigh down a bird, but they're what enable it to fly. And such a beautiful picture yeah. uh, from Augustine of, of the life that is to be found when we submit ourselves to Christ. Yeah. I've talked with enough people who have overcome one addiction or another, uh, be it you know, substance, sexual, uh, whatever. And it's fascinating to hear how, how they have experienced a degree of freedom or purity that they did not experience when they were just doing whatever they wanted, but sure. when they were able to be disciplined and to train themselves and, and really, you know, by means of the power of the Holy Spirit to, to become more Christ-like and to, uh, you know, put away these things, the, the freedom that they've experienced in not doing whatever they wanted mm -hmm. was, was absolutely life-giving. And it's, uh, I, I think that makes perfect sense here when you compare it, especially with this, with the idea of a yoke being like birds to a feather. That's a beautiful image from Augustine. I like yeah, that. That yeah. is great. All right. Uh, Dr. Pennington, as we wrap up, can you help us? Um, if folks want to you know, check out some of the stuff that you've done, or sure. if they want to follow you on any you know, like social media platform or if you have other things like that, can you help us uh, kind of find some ways where we can keep in touch with some of the things that you're up to? Sure. Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, I do have a website, just jonathanpennington.com. There's okay. a ton of stuff on there. Uh, actually, I have a ministry called Human Flourishing Ministries that has, uh, it's a podcast as well uh, that 
just records the many, many sermons that I'm preaching regularly and teaching mm-hmm. in various environments. Uh, so there's you know, over a hundred things on that podcast already. Uh, and then um, on social media, yeah. So just a DRJT Pennington, Dr. Jonathan JT Pennington uh, on Twitter, which is a platform that is usually negative, but I'm entirely positive all the time. Uh, and yeah. also uh, Instagram as well, Dr. JT Pennington. Okay. Uh, I also have something you may or may not know of. Uh, it's been a, a, over a year, two years since I've released any episodes, but for a while, a couple of years, I had a really fun thing called Cars Coffee Theology. I was hoping you were going to mention this. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's uh, there are 23 episodes out there where I have an old sports car that I would obviously inspired by Seinfeld, but <laughs> a lot more substantive conversations where I just drive around with other theologians and talk about uh, their books. And I've been blessed to just know, I know a lot of wonderful people who have mm-hmm. written great books. And so it's been a joy. Uh, again, it's COVID kind of shut that down, of course, but uh, uh, it's a small car. Uh, but <laughs> right, the, uh, yeah. but Is it a convertible? It a, Could you get away with it? Uh, it's way? not a convertible. Yeah, it wasn't a convertible. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it was a total joy. Uh, I may get back to that or not. I don't know. But I think students or sorry, listeners would probably really enjoy some of those conversations there yeah. that you can find there. It's a YouTube channel called Cars Coffee Theology. So Human Flourishing Ministries, JonathanBankton.com, Cars Coffee Theology on YouTube. All those are ways to see. Yeah. And your personal website is a great place to find uh, find links to your books. Uh, probably so. Yeah, I haven't been yeah. there in a while, but I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, hopefully um, next time you get a sabbatical here, uh, maybe in the next year or so, you, one of the reasons that you can convince them you need a sabbatical is because you need to get into your old car and drive around with friends again. That would be great. Well, I need to get the clutch fix first. <laughs> see, if but, uh, yeah. <laughs> see if your dean goes for that. Yeah, yeah, totally. He's been on. The dean's been on the show. So oh, okay. All right. So he knows. All right. Yeah, well, sir, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. And uh, hopefully sometime in the future, we'll be able to have you on again. I'd love to. Thanks. It was a joy. Bye-bye.